I'm Matt Johnson, recording from the Great Pacific Northwest, and that was the opening music from Paramount's Double Indemnity, released in 1944. And you're listening to episode four of Classic Movie Reviews at ClassicMovieReviews.net. And this is part two of our special episode, our special two-part episode, where we go into an incredible amount of detail about this amazing movie. And my co-host is... Bob Johnson from Los Angeles. We'll just jump right into where we left off last week, which was right after the scene where we find out that the plan is on. And at this point, you think, man, they've, you know, they're going to do it. They've got this plan. You know, we don't know exactly what the plan is, but we, we, we think that Neff is smart enough to maybe, you know, he could actually figure this out. So we cut back to the Dietrichson house. And uh, Neff is selling the husband on the insurance policy. Uh, Mr. Dietrichson's daughter, Lola, is there playing Chinese checkers with uh, Phyllis. And Neff tricks the husband into signing the accident insurance by basically having him sign a couple, quote-unquote, copies of the form that he's signing for his car insurance. And there's a great scene here. I just Another scene that I just loved so much. It seems so right, just spot on between the father and the daughter. She says she's going roller skating. Sure she is. Let's listen to that. Phyllis, do you mind if we don't finish this game? It bores me stiff. Got something better to do? Yes, I have. Father, is it all right if I run along now? Run along where? Who with? Just Ann. We're going roller skating. And who? And Matthews. It's not that Nino Sacchetti again, is it? Better not be that Sacchetti guy. If I ever catch you with that... It's Ann Matthews, I told you. And I also told you we're going roller skating. I'm meeting her at the corner of Vermont and Franklin, the northwest corner, in case you're interested, and I'm late already. I hope that's all quite clear. Good night, Father. Good night, Phyllis. Good night, Mr. Dickerson. I'm sorry. Good night, Mr. Neff. Good night, Mr. Neff. Uh, being, a, being a father of a, of a teenager, um, you just can kind of relate to that. So he, <laughs> he seemed like a decent enough guy. I don't think he was the nicest guy in the world, but... Uh, this really points out to me that we're basically hearing this entire story through Neff's confession. What what do you, what do you think about how that whole the whole movie is basically told through his confession on the dictaphone? I really like that style, but it certainly limits our ability to know anything about Mr. Diedrichson or even her his daughter uh, because it's so centered on the confession. And and we have to we have to uh, trust that he's a reliable narrator, right? There's that whole that whole trope, that whole thing about the unreliable narrator in fiction. Yes. And so we have to question. I think we need to question everything that he tells us about what actually happened. We can only really go on his side of the story. Uh, and and I kind of had that realization right around this point in the movie. Uh, and then we get to this part where uh, Neff is leaving. He's got the document signed. And he tells Phyllis about the double indemnity clause. Let's listen to that. Good night, Mr. Neff. All right, Walter. Why? He signed it, didn't he? Sure, he signed it. You saw him. Well, listen, that trip to Palo Alto, when does he leave? End of the month. He drives, huh? He always drives. Not this time. You're going to make him take the train. Why? Because it's all worked out for a train. Listen, baby. There's a clause in every accident policy, a little thing called double indemnity. The insurance companies put in a sort of a come-on for the customers. That means they pay double on certain accidents, the kind that almost never happen. 
Like, for instance, if a guy is killed on the train. So that's that's where they're going to really make their money. They, but they've got to figure out a way to get him onto a train. It seems like a pretty difficult setup, but they've got a plan to do it. Okay, and then we get into this weird scene. This was this this little side story to me. Maybe you can help me understand it. I, I didn't really understand it uh, even the second time I watched it. But there's this this thing that goes on between Miss you know Walter Neff and then Mr. Dietrichson's daughter Lola. She wants to get a ride into town uh, with Neff, and there seems to be this tension, this kind of weird tension that builds up between the two of them. Uh, he never really takes advantage of her in any way, I don't think, but they do spend quite a bit of time together later in the movie. Um, what do you think about that relationship between Lola and, and Neff? What, is there anything there, or or was it pretty innocent? Well, I, I also, later in the movie, again, not to get too far ahead, Neff gets involved again. They go to the Hollywood Bowl and down to the beach. and all. I really think it was just that she was in a world where she didn't have any family to speak of and her boyfriend was not nice. And I think she just saw Neff as a a guy that seemed to be spurred away. And in her world, there weren't that many people like that. I I never really thought about it in any other context. Yeah, you know, I guess maybe I might read too much into it. I kind of, I did feel bad for her. I think she seemed proud to me. Her mother was dead. Her stepmother is evil. Her father doesn't seem to be around much, and her boyfriend is a real jerk. Uh, Nino, he's 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 a real jerk in, to her. Yeah, he's, to me, he's a way bigger jerk than her dad. He's a he's not a nice man. All right, so here we we come to uh, now. I think we're getting into kind of a the movie starts to pick up uh, its pace a little bit here. We get we cut to a grocery store where Neff and Phyllis are going to meet. And Phyllis is going to be there every day at 11 a.m. so that they can run into each other accidentally when they need to. Accidentally on purpose, Neff says. Uh, so this to me was a little bit of a, a, of a, a hole in their plan because later on uh, Phyllis is sort of being watched by uh, Mr. Keys and has somebody watching her. And I'm kind of surprised that they never caught on to the fact that they were meeting there. Uh, but, you know, it, it might be one of those things you could overlook, or maybe they got to be more careful as, as they got further into their, their plot here. I got sidetracked by the fact that that grocery store looked like one in my hometown growing up as a little kid. <laughs> it looked just like they'd filmed it there. A little, little, little trip back in time. <laughs> But back in time, it was such a small, it was a set, obviously, on the studio lot. But I, I never picked up on the fact that they might have been watched or caught by doing that, uh, early on, anyway. Yeah, I don't think early on. I think maybe later when when Keyes was kind of suspecting what was might be going on. But, yeah, early on, I think it's probably, you know, a good a good plan. Phyllis keeps reeling Neff in at this point, saying how much she misses him and how hard it's been being away from him. And I think Neff is having a few second thoughts, though. He's, he's, he's losing his nerve a bit. Uh, and then we cut to a scene uh, here where Keyes is, really comes across as a father figure to Neff. He offers Neff a promotion. He, ge- he gives Neff a great speech about being a claims manager. And it was the 15th of June. 
You may remember that date, Keys. You came into my office around three in the afternoon. Hello, Keys. Just came from Norton's office. Semi-annual sales records are out. You're a high man, Walter. That's twice in a row. Congratulations. Thanks. How would you like a cheap drink? How would you like a $50 cut in salary? Do I laugh now or wait it gets funny? Oh, I'm serious. I've just been talking to Norton. Too much stuff piling up on my desk. Too much pressure on my nerves. I spent half the night walking up and down in my bed. I've got to have an assistant, and I thought of you. Me? Why pick on me? Well, because I've got a crazy idea. You might be good at the job. That's crazy, all right. I'm a salesman. Yeah. Peddler. Glad-hander. Backslapper. You're too good to be a salesman. Nobody's too good to be a salesman. Oh, fooey. All you guys do is just ring doorbells and dish out a smooth line of monkey talk. What's troubling you is that 50-buck cut, isn't it? Well, that'll trouble anybody. Now, look, Walter. The job I'm talking about takes brains and integrity. It takes more guts than there is in 50 salesmen. It's the hardest job in the business. Yeah, but it's still a desk job. I don't want to be nailed to a desk. Desk job? Is that all you can see in it? Just a hard chair to park your pants on from 9 to 5, huh? Just a pile of papers to shuffle around and five sharp pencils and a scratch pad to make figures on. Maybe a little doodling on the side. Well, that's not the way I look at it, Walter. To me, a claims man is a surgeon. That desk is an operating table. And those pencils are scalpels and bone chisels. And those papers are not just forms and statistics and claims for compensation. They're alive. They're packed with drama, with twisted hopes and crooked dreams. A claims man, Walter, is a, is a, is a doctor and a bloodhound and a... Who? Okay, hold on a minute. A claims man is a doctor and a bloodhound and a cop and a judge and a jury and a father confessor all in one. And you want to tell me you're not interested. You don't want to work with your brains. All you want to work is with your finger on the doorbell. Neff is really distracted and, and turns down the promotion. And Keyes, basically, I think he's, he's upset. You know, he's, he's bitter about the fact that his promotion has been turned down. He says, you're not smarter, Walter. You're just a little taller. And then Isn't that a out. great line? That's a great line. <laughs> and then he leaves the room, yeah. Uh, Mrs. Dietrichson has figured out a way to get her husband on a train for his business trip. And we find out that it's even more perfect than what they had hoped because Mr. Dietrichson has unfortunately broken his foot. And Neff thinks that this is actually going to play to their plan. So I think we kind of enter the second act of the movie here. Uh, the first act was all about kind of getting these two people together and putting this plan together and introducing the different characters. And I think the second act is really the process of, of the act itself and laying down Neff's alibi and kind of uh, them thinking that they've gotten away with it. So everything leading up to, the, you know, to, in the movie has led up to this point, and I think it gets more exciting and, and more nerve-wracking. And, and, the, and the music gets even more uh, moody. Neff's plan here is that he's going to hide in the back of Mr. Dietrichson's car, and Phyllis is going to drive uh, him to the train station because he can't drive. He's got a broken foot. This is where I found it a little bit hard to believe that Mr. Dietrichson didn't see Neff in the back of the car. But what, what did you think about how he had planned to do that? Well, I think the car they were in was an old LaSalle, and they had these big, high uh, seats. And I, I could see where... A person could hide in the back of that because we had an old 47 Chevrolet and they were so much different uh, in their design for those seats. I, I could, I, that didn't cause me a problem. The horn was the thing that 
you mentioned uh, in your notes was a little odd, my, I thought. Yeah, she their, their signal that they've worked out to let Neff know that, you know, it's time to commit the murder is that she's going to honk the horn three times. And honestly, it was just the three of them in the car. She could have just said, like, now or do it now or so she could have just said something i mean it wouldn't i mean mr dietrichson w wouldn't have had time to react right yeah right i guess the only thing for the horn being used well the thing in my mind is it pointed out again that mr dietrichson uh didn't get along that well with her and gave him a chance to grouse at her about how she, she took the wrong turn and why are you honking the horn it was a bit shocking when he actually did commit the murder. It, it, it's, it all happens off screen, so we don't actually see it. Uh, and we don't know exactly if, if he was strangled or he broke his neck or, or what. But, you know, really up to that point, I hadn't really seen Neff as sort of a bad guy. Um, I thought maybe he was a little bit dim-witted in the fact that he was falling for this plan so easily. But... Uh, after that, I really started to see him as as part of the the villain of you know one of the villains of of the movie. Definitely, the thing about the murder scene that sticks in my mind is the look on on Mrs. Dietrichson's face when her husband's being murdered, the intensity of her eyes and the coldness in that stare and look, like this didn't bother her one bit. It was right on plan with what she wanted to do yeah that's that's a good good point i have to go back and watch that again uh so they they successfully uh <clears throat> commit the murder and they get neff onto the train and the plan neff is going to impersonate uh, mr dietrichson and pretend to fall off of the back of the train uh so he makes his way back to the observation car uh, but this is where the plan starts to unravel because he's not alone back there. Like a chair? No thanks. I'd rather stand. You uh, going far? Palo Alto. My name is Jackson. I'm going all the way to Medford. Medford, Oregon. Uh-huh. I had a broken arm once. That darn cast itches something fierce, doesn't it? <laughs> I thought I'd go crazy with mine. Uh, Palo Alto's a nice little town. You a Stanford man? I, uh, I used to be. Uh-oh, I bet you left something behind. <laughs> I always do. <laughs> my cigar case. I guess I left it in my overcoat back in the section. Well, would you care to roll yourself a cigarette, mister? Dietrichson. Oh, thanks. I, uh, I really prefer a cigar. Maybe the porter could... Uh... Well, I could get your cigars for you. Be glad to, Mr. Dietrichson. Oh, it's not too much trouble. Car 9, Section 11. Car 9, Section 11. A pleasure. So Neff has to do some quick thinking, uh, which he does, and he's able to jump off the back of the train and, and make it look like uh, maybe he's fallen off. So I was going to say, on one side, as he's getting... Uh, on the train or moving around that's the worst looking bandage i've ever seen in my life that he's put around his foot it's not have... very believable is it for a cast <laughs> like he, he would never have made it in the in the medical field no it's it's pretty bad yeah that's another that's another little 
thing that kind of stands out. The other thing I'd mention about that is that he's a, he's a pretty tall guy. He's he's taller than Mr. Dietrichson, and you could there was a couple scenes where they were next to each other. You could see that uh, he he's using the crutches, and they would have been too tall for Mr. Dietrichson. And then what about his fingerprints on the crutches as well? So those were two things that seem like modern day CSIs would have figured that out right away, right? Especially the fingertip, the fingerprints, yeah. And and I think they had the ability to take fingerprints back in '38, didn't they? I, I should have looked that up. I, I believe so. That came on on in the in the twenties, I think, but I'm not sure. This did kind of point out something to my, you know, my something I noticed as I was watching this scene um, of of them putting Mr. Dietrichson on the train tracks and trying to make it look like it was a, a an accident is that I feel like I'm kind of jaded from all the CSI episodes I've watched and law and order and SVU and, and those types of shows. And so I don't think this had the same impact that it might've had if I'd watched it in the forties, it, it would have been much more interesting and much more um, exciting to me. Uh, but instead all I could think about were all the ways that they're going to get caught because they're being sloppy with how they're putting it together. Good point. So they, they, they put him on the train tracks. They, they get back to the car, and the car doesn't start right away. It, it, it's, it's, not, it's not starting up, and this really builds up the tension. Uh, but they do get it started, and as they're driving away, uh, Neff makes a comment that uh, Phyllis was basically had no emotions, no tears, not even a blink of an eye. She's, she's basically just stone cold, like you mentioned. She has no emotions about this. Uh, Neff's pretty confident at this point that they've gotten away with it, but then suddenly doubt starts creeping back in. That was all there was to it. Nothing had slipped. Nothing had been overlooked. There was nothing to give us away. And yet, Keys, as I was walking down the street to the drugstore, suddenly it came over me that everything would go wrong. It sounds crazy, Keys, but it's true, so help me. I couldn't hear my own footsteps. It was the walk of a dead man. He feels like he can't feel his, his feet. Like he's just, he's almost having an out-of-body experience at that point. Um, and this is where I think the third act starts. I think they've committed the, the murder, and now we find out how it all plays out. And from here on out, it's just like pieces falling into the puzzle of how this all fits together. And Key's boss has a theory. He doesn't believe it was an accident. Friedrichson's secretary says she didn't know anything about the policy. There's a daughter, but all she remembers is Neff talking to her father about accident insurance at the house one night. I couldn't sell him at first. Mrs. Dietrichson opposed it. Uh, he said he'd think it over. Later I saw him in the oil fields and closed him. He signed the application and gave me his check. A fine piece of salesmanship that was, Mr. Neff. Well, there's no sense in pushing Neff around. He's got the best sales record in the office. Are your salesmen supposed to know a customer is going to fall off the train? Fall off a train? Are we sure Dietrichson fell off the train? I don't get it. You don't, Mr. Keyes. Then what do you think of this case? This policy might cost us a great deal of money. As you know, it contains a double indemnity clause. And Mrs. Dietrichson, in that interview when they brought her in, again exhibited that stone-cold demeanor. Oh, absolutely. She was, she was believable as somebody who had no idea that there was even an insurance policy and that... Uh, 
she she didn't know about what the terms of it were and you know that her husband takes care of all that stuff and the look on Neff's face was like oh man we're gonna get caught here but nope she pulls it off I think he's also beginning to realize that she's a lot more devious and cold than he thought yeah when that couple pulled off like that she is much more of an actress uh, than what maybe he thought she was earlier on and he might start be starting to get a glimmer of of an idea that things aren't going his way like he thought they were uh, the boss here key's boss was kind of an interesting character he he seemed uh he made a few comments about how people with big desks uh aren't really seen as being maybe the brightest people he's got a theory uh, key's boss thinks that it was suicide The boss comes off as really not being that smart in this scene, I think. He he seems like somebody who just worked his way up through administrative channels, but not really having done much work in claims management. The contrast between him and Keyes was was fun to watch because Keyes is kind of rumpled and not wearing a suit coat. And there's some comment about that as he's leaving. He says, "Next time I'll wear a tuxedo." Yeah, let's listen to Keyes. Gives Let's the boss. listen. Let's listen to Keyes pretty much demolish the suicide theory. This is probably my favorite scene in the whole movie. Nice going, Mr. Norton. You sure carry that ball. What do you fumble on the goal line? Then you heaved an illegal forward pass and got thrown for a forty-yard loss. Now you can't pick yourself up because you haven't got a leg to stand on. Boy, haven't he? She can go to court and we can prove it was suicide. Oh, can we? Mr. Norton, first thing that struck me was that suicide angle. Only I dumped it into the waste paper basket just three seconds later. You know, you uh, ought to take a look at these statistics on suicide sometime. You might learn a little something about the insurance business. Mr. Keyes, I was raised in the insurance business. Yeah, in the front office. Come now, you've never read an actuarial table in your life, have you? Why, we've got ten volumes on suicide alone. Suicide by race, by color, by occupation, by sex, by seasons of the year, by time of day. Suicide, how committed? By poisons, by firearms, by drowning, by leaps. Suicide by poison, subdivided by types of poison, such as corrosive, irritant, systemic, gaseous, narcotic, alkaloid, protein, and so forth. Suicide by leaps, subdivided by leaps from high places, under the wheels of trains, under the wheels of trucks, under the feet of horses, from steamboats. But Mr. Norton, of all the cases on record, there's not one single case of suicide by leap from the rear end of a moving train. And you know how fast that train was going at the point where the body was found? Fifteen miles an hour. Now, how can anybody jump off a slow-moving train like that with any kind of expectation that he would kill himself? No. Yeah, all the, st all the statistics, yes. <laughs> Neff is really happy after that speech. He says he could have kissed Keyes. Uh, he lights Keyes' cigarette again with a flick of his thumb. More tension builds up as Keyes uh, shows up to Neff's apartment later that night. Uh, Keyes feels like that little man is talking to him. Something's not right. Uh, but also at the same time, Phyllis is on her way over to the apartment. So <laughs> this could not, this could probably end up pretty badly. Uh, what's interesting here is that uh, Neff's apartment door opens outward into the hallway, which no apartment door would do uh, because it's against building code even back in 1938. But it was constructed that way. I read some uh, things about how they put the movie together. Uh, it was constructed that way so that it gave Phyllis a place to hide while Keyes and Neff talked in the hallway. Isn't that a great scene where she's behind the door, Neff is holding onto the doorknob, and Keyes is talking, and Neff realizes that she's behind the door. Yeah, she pulls Look on on the his door. Yeah.
And then we cut to a scene where Lola shows up at Neff's office and we learn just how evil Phyllis really is, how scheming she is. And Neff at this point realized that he's been played. Look at me, Mr. Neff. I'm not crazy. I'm not hysterical. I'm not even crying. But I have the awful feeling that something's wrong. And I had that same feeling once before, when my mother died. When your mother died? We were at Lake Arrowhead. That was six years ago. We had a cabin there. It was winter and very cold. My mother was very sick with pneumonia. She had a nurse with her. There were just the three of us in the cabin. One night, I got up and went into my mother's room. She was delirious with fever. All the bed covers were on the floor and the windows were wide open. The nurse wasn't in the room. I ran and covered my mother up as quickly as I could. Just then, I heard the door open behind me. The nurse stood there. She didn't say a word, but there was a look in her eyes I'll never forget. Two days later, my mother was dead. Do you know who that nurse was? No, who? Phyllis. That, when I first saw this movie the first couple of times, I was really surprised by the cold, the cold nature of what she had done with uh, the mother. With Lola's mother. Yeah, she she just left her to die of pneumonia. It was terrible. Uh, there's a scene uh, where there's another guy in Neff's office, and Neff asked that guy to leave. I couldn't place his face the first time I watched the movie, but he's the he's the reporter from the movie The Thing. He's the one who, at the very end of that movie, is saying, "Beware!" The you know he's giving. Oh, the, he's giving. I missed. I missed that. I missed that one. Yeah, next time you watch it, take a look at the guy that comes out in Neff's office. I'm I'm pretty sure that's the same guy from the movie The Thing. Was it his office mate his, his, that shared the office with him? I think so. I think I'll, so. I'll take a look at that. You're probably right, because that guy made 7,000 movies, I swear. <laughs> uh, so Neff takes Lola out to dinner, and they spend the day together, and I think she's he's trying to make sure that Lola doesn't go spill the beans to anybody else about how uh, evil Phyllis is because uh, he doesn't want anybody to get onto her trail. He's kind of keeping an eye on her. At the same time, I think he's realizing that it's just unraveling faster than he than he could have ever thought. They uh, Keys brings Keys is is in the full detective mode at this point, and he's actually identified the man who was on the back of the train with, with Mr. Dietrichson, supposedly Mr. Dietrichson, and has brought him back down from Oregon uh, all the way back to Los Angeles to have a meeting, uh, which lasts all of about three minutes. And he had, this man from the back of the train says, looks at some pictures of Mr. Dietrichson and says, nope, that's not the man I saw on the back of the train. And here's, you know, Neff is like, yeah, this is not going well. Uh, but he does keep it together in that situation. He's a pretty cool character himself, I think. He is. Yep. Just as it's an aside. A close race. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say it's a close race between whether he or Mrs. Dedrickson are the coldest of the group. Uh, yeah, which they're, coldest. They're trying to one up each other on, <laughs> on that. Just a little aside, though. I thought it was funny that they had to bring this guy down from Oregon for this meeting that lasted three minutes. There's no faxes. There's no email. The only way they could talk to him and have him look at those was to actually physically bring him 
into the office like that. On a train? On a train, yeah. So there's probably a three-day adventure round trip and all. You made a comment about how interesting Key's office is. It is. got to look at the walls behind him. He's got these uh, great charts and graphs in frames on the wall behind him. And I paused at a couple spots to look at them. And it's just funny that he would have that. Today we would have that on an iPad or on, on the, our right. laptop or something. I was struck by how much I want the desk that he had. With all those little drawers, my goodness sakes. That desk had about 50 little drawers. (laughs) Full of cigars. (laughs) Probably. So here we get another great speech by Keyes. Keyes had some of the best scenes in the movie. He was just such a great character. But he goes into how murder is never perfect and that two people that committed the murder on a train, they're on a train together. And the last stop is the cemetery. Look. Yeah, there it is, Walter. It's beginning to come apart at the seams already. Murder is never perfect. Always comes apart sooner or later. And when two people are involved, it's usually sooner. Now, we know the Dietrichson dame is in it and a somebody else. Pretty soon we'll know who that somebody else is. He'll show. He's got to show. Sometime, somewhere, they've got to meet. Their emotions are all kicked up. Whether it's love or hate doesn't matter. They can't keep away from each other. They may think it's twice as safe because there are two of them. <laughs> but it isn't twice as safe. It's ten times twice as dangerous. They've committed a murder. And it's not like taking a trolley ride together where they can get off at different stops. They're stuck with each other and they've got to ride all the way to the end of the line. That's a one-way trip and the last stop is the cemetery. I just love that scene. That was, that was another great one. Uh, we, we start to see Phyllis's true nature. I mean, we, we have already been seeing glimpses of that, but it's really starting to come out now. Uh, they're in the market again and they're having an emergency meeting because Neff kind of knows that Keys is on to them. Um, she tells Neff that he planned the murder. It was him, not her. And he committed the murder. She just suggested it. She's so evil. <laughs> at, this, at this point, Neff starts to think, I've got to kill her, too. This is classic melodrama film noir. I mean, and we see it in today's in movies in different ways, in different movies, but it's it's a theme for decades. Yeah, Who's absolutely. Right up till today. I mean, you watch TV shows today, and it's it's the same kind of storyline. Yeah, although the writing in this movie is is just such a high caliber. It's not very. You don't find that really high caliber of writing very often. No, that's true. So Neff decides he's going to kill Phyllis, little realizing that Phyllis has a plan to kill him. <laughs> so Neff shows up at her, her house, uh, and they start to have this banter back and forth again. And he is slowly going around the room, closing blinds and closing windows and turning off lights. And Phyllis realizes what he's doing, and she's hidden a gun under the cushion of the chair. And just as he turns around and basically tells her that this is her, you know, end, she shoots him, but it's not a shot that kills him. It's right in the the left shoulder. Neff comes up to her and I think, I, I couldn't tell if this was genuine or not, but Phyllis seems to confess that she actually does love Neff, but he's not buying it. Why didn't you shoot again, baby? Don't tell me it's because you've been in love with me all this time. 
No, I never loved you, Walter, not you or anybody else. I'm rotten to the heart I used you, just as you said. That's all you ever meant to me. Until a minute ago. When I couldn't fire that second shot. I never thought that could happen to me. Sorry, baby, I'm not buying. I'm not asking you to buy. Just hold me close. Goodbye, baby. Did you think that she, that was just her last desperate attempt to try to save herself, that she really doesn't love him? Well, by this time in the movie, I don't trust her on any level, so I figured she was just acting so that he wouldn't do her in. And it's interesting, I was just thinking about this, in a movie made about two and a half or three years later called Out of the Past, no, not out of the, it was a different movie, but anyway, the ending has Kurt Douglas... Uh, killing uh, the woman in the movie, who I think also was Barbara Stanwyck, in the same manner. Hmm. Yeah, Neff doesn't miss because he's standing there basically hugging her right next to him and puts two bullets right into her abdomen. Man. Yeah, he is. He's, he's cold. Uh, so just to kind of cut to the end here, I think we've covered uh, all the major points of the film. Uh the only other little little scene after that happens is that uh, the Nino character, the guy that was going out with Lola, was going to show up at, at the house because uh, Mrs. Dietrichson had kind of been stringing him along and was going to pull him into the plot. Uh, but Neff catches him and says, don't go in there, turn around, go back downtown, be with Lola, Lola loves you. Uh, Phyllis was never into you, and, you know, that was kind of Neff's only redeeming it was in the movie. I mean, he basically saved Nino from kind of being caught up in this whole scheme. Yeah, I think he was, uh, I think Nino was going to be the next victim in this thing. Yeah. Uh, it was going to, I think she was going to make it look like Nino killed Neff, I think, and then she was going to get away with it. Yeah, and get, I think get, that's right. Get all the money, and then we cut to the back to the office, and we're back to the present moment with uh, Neff talking into the dictaphone, and we find out that Keys had actually been behind him for a good part of this confession, and says to uh, Keys says to to Neff's character, he says, "Walter, you're all washed up." Neff wants to try and make a run for the Mexican border, and Keys knows that. This isn't going to happen. He's he's in no shape to to go anywhere. Uh, there was another another great line there. Oh, go go ahead. No, man. no, I'm go sorry. ahead. What was the? Well, I was just going to say that another great line is when Key says to Neff, "You won't even make it to the elevator." Yeah, he won't even make it to the elevator, which is which is true. Uh, he makes it only a few feet out the door, and then he collapses. For some reason, I remembered that he had died at the end of the movie the first time I watched it, and then I watched it again and. He doesn't die. He just collapses. Uh, the final scene of the movie is Keys lighting a cigarette for Neff, and Keys lights it that same way with his thumb. And I just thought that yeah. was a classic. That that's yeah. where it kind of all brought it together and and really cemented that relationship. I think between the two of them is almost like a father son relationship. Let's listen to a clip there at the very end of the movie. 
an ambulance in the Pacific building on Olive Street. Yeah? It's a police job. the elevator a couple of miles away. They're on the way. You know why you couldn't figure this one, Keys? I'll tell you. Because the guy you were looking for was too close. Right across the desk from you. Closer than that, Walter. I love you, too. So I, I have to tell you, I, I, I love this movie. I, I, I do know that I've seen it before a long time ago. I think uh, maybe 30 years ago or about that long ago. So I did not remember any of it. But I really enjoyed watching it. And I think it was a great suggestion for, for our podcast. I think I could watch this movie about once a month and never get tired of it. I was reading this time around that they had an alternate ending where uh, uh, Neff was in the electric chair or the gas chamber. I forget which one it was, but they never used it. They ended it the way they did, which I think is better because it sort of leaves you up in the air as to what happens to him. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't end it with the scene of him in the gas chamber. I thought it was just perfect the way they did end it. And then the music comes up again. Yep. I'm overwhelmed by the beauty of that music and how it fits the score it, or, the, it, or the, the show or the yeah, movie. Yeah, it just fades to black. The music cues up and then they go into uh, uh, a few end credits. But I, I, do they even have end credits? Actually, I think they might just cue up some music and then the movie ends. I think that's the way they did it back then because it was all studio production. And the list that we see now in movies of all the people that made the movie, I don't think ever were wherever wherever showing at the beginning they would do kind of a summary of the of the uh, lead people but not all of the uh, grips and all of that that you see today yeah that's a good point i mean that's really something that is different in those older movies uh, compared to today where you can sit for 10 minutes after the movie and watch all the list of names scroll by of everybody that worked on it here you you wouldn't know any of those people none of none of them are identified no, they would have just, I think they were just employees of the studio. Yeah. A couple other questions movie. I had. I, I wondered, uh, the movie was set in 1938, but it was released in 1944. So it was being made during the Second World War. Uh, there's absolutely no mention of the war. It's it's set before the war happened. Why do you think they set the story five or six years earlier than when it was released? I know that was in your... Uh review notes and I was thinking about that the only thing that I can think of is that they wanted to make it so that it was before the war in Europe because the war in Asia had been going on in the 30s in China but I think they just did it that way so there wouldn't have to be anything mentioned about the war it just wasn't a part of the story it didn't need to be a it part wasn't of the part story. of the story once they made it clear that it was 1938 that's that's the only thing i can think of so because different than so different than last time. week's movie on the town or the 
the previous movie we looked at where there was just so much patriotism and it was all about the sailors and the war and uh and then my last comment here uh and i don't know if you have any others but i did not notice this at all but uh fred mcmurray apparently was wearing his wedding ring through the whole filming and it was probably i hadn't noticed i hadn't noticed that either but he was he was married to uh i think her name is was june haver for decades and i I hadn't noticed that either until this time. Hmm. I think I've watched it enough times. I was just missing. <laughs> there was some, again, there was some discussion on those IMDb uh, forums about how salesmen will sometimes wear wedding rings because they'll be more likable if people think that they're married. So oh, maybe okay. he was, maybe he was wearing it because he was the salesman of insurance uh, and then other people thought, no, he just didn't want to take his wedding ring off during the filming, and and so they just let him keep it on. And I think either, ex- either. explanation is is valid. Yeah, either one because he was happily married, uh, seems like for fifty years or so, maybe longer. The, there was uh, some talk about how Raymond Chandler was hard to get along with, or didn't get along with Billy Wilder, Wilder, or. Did you did you read anything on that, or do you have any comments on Raymond Chandler and and his screenplay and how he got along with the director or the James Kane, the writer of the book? Well, I know they collaborated on the screenplay, uh, uh, Raymond Chandler and Billy Wilder, but when we were in that movie class, they had an hour interview with Billy Wilder, and he never mentioned that they didn't get along. He just said that there was a lot of creative tension going on in almost all of his movies mm. where they'd have disagreements, but it wasn't just Raymond Chandler. Although I don't think it would be very helpful to work with uh, a guy like Chandler, who I guess had quite a drinking problem. Uh, <clears throat> the only time that Raymond Chandler's ever been on film was in this movie. And uh, I'll put a link in our uh, show notes for this episode of a video clip of him. Uh, but it's as Neff is leaving the office, there's a man sitting outside of the office in a chair, and that's Raymond Chandler. And I guess it's the only time he's ever been on film. So that's, that's kind of interesting. That is. And, you know, as many times as I've seen this movie, I never saw that. So you're <laughs> learning new things about this movie? Yeah. podcast. That, I, and you've seen after, this movie, what, like 70 times? After 25 more times, I may get everything on there. <laughs> no. Uh, so let's. what would you give this movie from a, on a scale from 1 to 10? Oh, I give it a 10. 10 out of 10. Yeah. 10 out of 10. I, I, of 10. I man, I was going to give it a 9 out of 10 uh, because of some of the little plot holes and, and things, but I think I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10 because if I put myself in the shoes of somebody who's watched it when it first came out, for instance, or if I put some of my... Uh, qualms aside about some of those things with the fingerprints and the, the crutches and whatnot that the dialogue, the cinematography, the mood, the, the music, all that just is so great. So I think I was going to give it a nine, but after talking about it with you, I'm, I'm going to go with a 10 as well. Right on. All right. So that concludes part two of our special two part episode on double indemnity. And we will be back next week with a new movie. And this time we're going with something a little bit more modern. We're going to be reviewing Young Frankenstein. 
And I'm really looking forward to this one. I, I love this movie. Oh, so do I. So do I. There, <laughs> it's quite different than the one we just reviewed, isn't it? Yeah, we're, we're, we're covering uh, a pretty wide variety of genres in, in our first uh, five episodes of our podcast. Mel Brooks is a genius in my mind, I tell you. I remember seeing that movie in, in a drive-in movie theater. You took us to it. Uh, gosh, I, I don't even know how old I was, but I must have been oh, less than you know, 10, 8 or 10 years old, something like that. I'll have to look at, see when the movie came out. To, to... It, I think it was 1974, so we probably went to the drive-in in Bismarck. So I would have been maybe five or six then, probably. Six or seven, young, maybe. But yeah, yeah I, I do actually remember that, and it was it was... It was such a funny movie, even at that age. So that'll be next week, and uh, really looking forward to it. So until then, I'm Matt Johnson, uh, recording again from the beautiful Pacific Northwest. And I'm Bob Johnson here in Los Angeles. And until then, happy movie watching. Well, that was uh, that definitely two parts. I thought it might be after I typed up uh, ten pages of notes. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the movie uh, Young Frankenstein I, I found isn't streamed on Netflix, which I thought was odd. Yeah, I don't know that why they don't have it up there. They do have they've got blazing saddles. Blazing saddles, yeah. And and the only copy of Young Frankenstein that I had was a VHS tape that I. Uh, left with somebody up in uh, North Bend. So, well, the good the good news is it's on sale at Target. The Blu-ray is on sale at Target for five dollars. So, oh, it is. I'm going to pick one up for you tonight, and I'll stick it in the mail, and you'll have it in plenty of time to watch it. So, I'll collect a bunch of these movies that you're sending. And I'll mail them all back in a big box, or I can pick them up when we're down there in June. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. <laughs>